Our production schedule has been sporadic lately. That's if you're listening in October 2019. It'll continue to be sporadic until we complete a move to Los Angeles. That should be done by mid-October, so be ready for some new episodes then. And thanks for listening. Now there's a new group of frontline supervisors that have now taken the reins on this, and many of them haven't seen a large-scale incident. And unfortunately, they have to learn by making mistakes on it. And what these tactical worksheets do is give them a guideline to follow this. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. From the Enchanted Sky Studios in Prescott, Arizona, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategies, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. Today, we're talking tactical worksheets for EMS. That pause was to let people who began looking for the skip button find it. If you're still with me, that's good because this is a lot more important than it may sound. A tactical worksheet for EMS is nothing more than a glorified checklist. Who needs that? Well, if airline pilots use a checklist on every flight, maybe they should be in your arsenal also. They can prevent mistakes and maybe even protect you later if someone starts looking for blame. Here to explain the details is Bruce Evans. He's the fire chief and a paramedic at the Upper Pine River Protection District in Bayfield, Colorado. Bruce is on the board of directors at the National Association of EMTs, and he's a National Fire Academy instructor. He's also on the Institute of Medicine's Preparedness Committee. And Bruce Evans joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Hello. Well, let's talk about tactical worksheets. In essence, it's just a checklist. A lot of professions use them, even ICs and fires use them. So why haven't they been widely adopted for EMS? Let me just uh, back up, Scott, and say that, you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon out there. One of them is the fact that, you know, if we have a, uh, a structure fire or we even have an automated alarm, we typically send a standardized response of resources, you know, three engines, a truck, a battalion chief, and a medic unit. And we do that on stuff that is, you know, probability-wise is probably going to be a false alarm. However, when it comes to EMS-related issues, um, the dispatcher may take the call and find out that there's, you know, three to four, maybe five or six or more patients there, and it still gets a single engine and an ambulance response in most cases. And then they show up, and and then there's chaos, and everybody's trying to um, organize their thoughts on these things. And a, a lot of times, a, a, a resource or a tactical worksheet gets skipped because there's not enough manpower, not enough personnel to make this thing uh, get mitigated properly. And then um, certainly when we start talking about large-scale incidents like a working structure fire and you have a lot of resources applied to it, 
you know, uh, traditionally most command officers have known that they need some kind of worksheet or some kind of clipboard to help them organize their resources and make sure they're accountable for people. And certainly as we saw things start to happen um, more often when uh, command officers would lose tracking of their crews and somebody would be injured in an OSHA investigation or an IOSH investigation would come in on top of that, it got pretty clear very quickly that you need to be tracking your resources. So now I think we've seen um, some litigation start to pop up about people asking questions about why did this patient get transported first and my other loved one who didn't make it not get transported why was there not enough ambulances there? I mean, we just saw recently in the press, one of the presidential candidates criticized two fire departments for not having enough ambulances there within an hour, which was completely false. Odessa Fire had plenty of ambulances on scene for uh, the shooting that occurred down there recently. And and again, you know, when you go back and have to try to document that and prove it, uh, it goes back to the old saying, if it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. So you know, now a tactical worksheet is there, one, to help you organize your thoughts and, and uh, bring some order to the chaos. And number two, it uh, provides a written record of the fact of your decision-making process and the fact that you did apply resources to certain things that other people may claim didn't get resources. And that's where I was going next. It sounds like this is, while this is a good idea for organizing the scene and the response to it, it's also an answer to the litigious atmosphere of the country these days because it creates a paper trail of sorts. Absolutely. And, you know, and the other thing is, is that there's an old concept and it's still very pertinent today called recognition prime decision making. And, you know, in a nutshell, that's essentially saying that, you know, there's like Brunacini used to say, there's a there's a slide in your slide deck where you've seen this before. And a lot of times now we've, we have a changeover of a generation of firefighters and command officers and EMS officers. And now there's a new group of frontline supervisors that have now taken the reins on this. And many of them haven't seen a large scale incident. And unfortunately, they have to learn by making mistakes on it. And what these tactical worksheets do is give them a guideline uh, to follow this. You know, you wouldn't put a brand new pilot in the front seat of a 737 and ask him to just wing it. (laughs) He's got a checklist to follow there. He's got a safety checklist to follow. There's a, a, a bunch of other crew resource management principles that are put into place in the cockpit there. And that even allows, you know, for... Um, some standardization, but it also allows for, you know, the dynamics to be worked through on the entire crew um, so that if there's something of concern to somebody, that's going to get reported or it's going to get addressed and it's going to get some attention. Some people are going to look at this idea and say it's great for an MCI where you have a lot of personnel, but for, say, a multi-vehicle crash, it's just too much to deal with. Is there a line we can draw about when this sort of a form is needed? So I always like to use this on, you know, five patients or more, but certainly the five patient number or, you know, four patient number is certainly okay too. And here's the argument for using it on even the smaller types of motor vehicle crashes. You're exercising your memory and you're exercising your brain. You're putting a little muscle memory in there by filling out the form and maybe not so critical of an incident so that when the big one does happen, and you have a lot of stress on you because you have a lot of injuries or a lot of uh, victims and maybe you're a little short on your resources to start out with, that it's going to help you organize your, your thinking. 
you've had your, like I said, you built your muscle memory on, uh, you know, I guess what we would call a farm club event or a smaller event so that you're ready for the big league when uh, when you're called up. Now, at your agency, do they use these forms routinely, and how has it helped? So we don't have a lot of calls, and, and this has helped in our agency by using these forms because we have a, we're a small, super rural fire department that doesn't see a lot of incidents. So you don't get the muscle memory. You don't get the practice or the... You know, you don't get the recognition prime decision-making thing put into your uh, your toolbox. So in, in cases where you have low volume and maybe you have brand new members that haven't experienced anything like this, um, having a check sheet or having a, you know, a guide to help you with your decision-making is absolutely critical. And that's what, what I found here in, in the rural department. What are the basic elements of what belongs on a tactical worksheet for EMS? So, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I think is absolutely key is that you have some kind of organizational chart there, and and that's going to help you track your units. And, you know, much like ICS or IMS programs that we've all been through, whether it's wildland, it's hazmat, or it's a structure fire, um, you have certain groups that, and, uh, that, are going to be functional that need to perform their duties on the scene. So this kind of helps you a little bit, you know, in this particular tackle uh, EMS tactical worksheet, there's a, a triage unit and, a, you know, every, patients have to be triaged before they can be treated. So you know who has the priority and then you move from to the right and you have a treatment unit. You may have a rescue extrication group um, that is assigned to remove patients out of a hazard zone and then, of course, a transportation group. And there, there may be different divisions. Um, say, for example, you know, you're responding to a, a, a train derailment, and there's four um, passenger cars that are off the track, and you know, each one of them has a number. You may want to division each of those. Um, that's a fairly common process. Or let's say you're responding to a, um, um, a freeway accident, and it's a big pileup that might go for a couple different miles, say, something similar to the Long Beach event that happened with fog down there. And each mile, maybe mile marker 27 to 28 is going to be its own division, and mile marker 26 to 27 will be its own division. And um, maybe there's a hazmat leak in one of those miles, and maybe there's just a, uh, a bunch of patients in the other one. And it helps you sort out your resources and organize them for org charts. So that that is probably the the key thing that needs to be in there. And most tactical worksheets all have that. And then the next key component I think that's critical in a tactical worksheet is identifying what your first alarm, second alarm, and third alarm or additional units are. So, for example, Phoenix has had uh, what they call a two-in-one medical response and a first alarm medical response that Brunacini put in there many, many years ago. So if the dispatcher gets information that, you know, there's eight or ten victims to an incident, you know, they can push the button and send a first alarm medical right away and get three ambulances, three ALS engines, a, a truck company, a heavy rescue, and two command officers. And, you know, that way you're showing up in force. You can mitigate the problem very quickly. But each agency probably has something similar to that, I would hope. And we can look at that and say, okay, what are you typically getting on your first alarm medical assignment? Is it two ambulances and two engines? Is it two ambulances and a supervisor, two ambulances and some kind of specialty truck? Those need to be defined. And then 
a lot of times it's very helpful too to know where your additional transport units would come from in a large scale incident. So most of us deal with mutual aid pretty frequently between our neighbors, but um, if you had to go one neighbor over from your normal mutual aid partners to get an ambulance for a mass casualty event, say an active shooter or a school bus crash, who are those people and what do they have available for you? So having a list of where you can get your kind of second or third tier ambulances is probably critical because a lot of command officers and certainly frontline supervisors that might be an engine company captain or a local EMS supervisor may not know what's in that third tier of ambulances available to come to you. you like I said, you're probably familiar with your mutual aid partners, but what's it, what's their mutual aid partners look like on the other side of them out, like I said, in that third tier of resources that would come in for you. One one other thing I'd add on the tactical worksheet that I think is necessary, Scott, is that the triage report and a primary and a secondary triage report are absolutely critical. And counting the number of patients that are immediate, delayed, minor, and potentially deceased, because those are going to tell you what kind of resources, you, additional resources you're going to need at the scene. I'll be back with more right after this. Don't miss your chance to get your hands on the hottest logo wear around. Code Free Podcast Gear makes you look good and tells the world you're a fan. Now you can wear the Code 3 logo proudly. Just go to our website, Code3Podcast.com. Click the banner and you'll be able to order an assortment of cool apparel and accessories. And thanks for supporting the podcast that supports firefighters. It seems also that keeping track of that is good for accountability when you get to the lawsuit time of how many vehicles for transport you had available, who went where and in what vehicle. That's a great point. And, you know, it's it's interesting that Academy of Sciences and the uh, Preparedness Committee from the National Academies of Medicine produced a white paper uh, about two years ago looking at the last uh, 20 or 30 active shooter events or bombing events that occurred since Columbine. And one of the things that was highlighted in that paper was the issue about under-resourcing these incidents. For example, an active shooter that would occur in an educational facility you and say it initially gets a, an ambulance and an engine, maybe two ambulances sent to it. By the time all the other resources are summoned there. If there's any kind of delay, um, you know, you have parents that have showed up, you have police cars that have showed up, and they've all blocked the access into the to the site, and then somebody gets delayed in getting taken out of those incidents. And we saw that also with the Orlando shooting, where there was a lot of questions about resources coming to um, some of the victims that were pulled out of the building or that were self-transported. Uh, we certainly saw it in Las Vegas, where you know, the, the density down there made it very difficult to get transport resources in. And a lot of patients were put in pickup trucks or uh, Ubers or people's passenger cars and taken to where, wherever Google showed them was the closest hospital that may not have been appropriate for a gunshot wound. So making sure that you order up your resources and you apply the right amount of resources to the incident is absolutely critical. And I have to go back to what Brunacini used to say, is you send a standardized set of resources to an incident, you'll get a standardized outcome. And, you know, that he preached that all the time, and this is a, falls along that same line. 
Would you prefer to see this in a paper form or on, say, an electronic tablet? You know, I personally, I like it in both. You know, if you're sophisticated enough to have electronic tablets and um, you have, you know, there's a lot of software that's out there now for command vehicles that you can have your uh, tactical worksheets kind of loaded onto your mobile data terminals or on an iPad. That's great until the battery's low or until you have to get out and maybe be a little bit mobile or, you know, certainly we've seen situations where, you know, if your mobile data terminal and that's it's on a remote server and you have to have an internet connection, it's not uncommon when we've had mass casualty events that everybody gets on their cell phone to talk to their friend or see if their friend's okay and it overloads the cell network. And although, you know, FirstNet and some of these other cell networks that have said that they're priority-driven, we've seen recently that that's not necessarily, that it's not necessarily a reliable connection in the event that there's a lot of people on a cell phone and you have cell sites that get taken down by some kind of disaster. So I think having the paper backup is absolutely essential. The other nice thing about the paper backup, I think, is that you can certainly use it in the simulation room and in training. And uh, it's a little bit more low tech. And, and again, certainly when you get into a disaster situation where there's a lot of patients, you know, sometimes reverting back to, you know, something that's simple and something that's low tech, you know, where you don't have, you know, a command officer trying to figure out how to pull up the chart, how to log on and then how to fill this out or, you know, because their thumbs are too big or they're, you know, trying to do a touch screen or the same height, <laughs> you know, that just doesn't always work. And, and like I said, you know, they, you pull these things out and, you know, there was a, there was a big push for a long time to do these scannable triage tags and then have these little screens on these kind of handheld devices that would put patient data in. And, you know, and a, a lot of times, you know, those first people doing those triage, uh, that triage task, you know, they don't have time to spin up a computer and to start typing things in. You know, that's supposed to be done very quickly. And a low-tech device is a lot more reliable than pulling something out that may have a dead battery or that you used in training once a year. And getting back to pen and paper is a, you know, that's always going to be reliable for you. Technology is definitely not the solution to every problem in the field. All right, Bruce Evans, thanks for talking with me on Code 3 today. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. And we put some more information about Tactical Worksheets for EMS on our website at code3podcast.com slash worksheet. Check it out. Don't forget that you can be a supporter of this podcast by making a monthly pledge. If you get something out of Code 3, please give us a hand. A buck a month, five, ten, or more, all counts. Head over to Code3Podcast.com slash support to join the people who are already backing the show. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Remember, we get back to our full-time schedule in mid-October, so stay with us. And thank you for listening. I'll be back then with more. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.